You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Sex robots. I'm Forum. I'm here for sex robots. As longtime listeners already know, I am firmly in the pro-sex robot camp. Pro-sex robots, mostly for the centaur fetishists out there. For the record, I am not now, nor have I ever been, a centaur fetishist. Although I've denied being a centaur fetishist so many times that even I'm starting to wonder what I might be hiding. But whether I'm into centaurs or not, I want to live in a world where centaur fetishists can find love with robots. Same goes for men into 50-foot-tall women and women who want to, oh, I don't know, sleep with football teams or TikTok stars but don't want to be forced to make post-coital chit-chat with guys who play football or make TikTok videos. An all-robot football team? Yeah, do them. Then make them sing the Aggie song, then power them down. So imagine my horror when I saw Mike Werner's piece at consumer gadget website BGR.com with the headline, Your Future Sex Robot Could Be Hacked and Programmed to Murder You. The technology, sex robot technology, rather primitive at the moment, Winner writes, but there's no telling what the future could hold. Death by sex robot could end up on some unfortunate soul's tombstone. All right, first I want to say good job, BGR. Good job with that headline. It addresses readers as a group that will, in the future, all have sex robots, so it doesn't other people who want or will have sex robots in the future. It's not talking to a presumed group of default, quote, normal readers about all those freaks out there who'll have sex robots in the future, but instead assumes that everyone's going to have a sex robot, at least everyone who reads consumer gadget websites, which may be a safe assumption. Or maybe sex robots are going to be like colored TVs and microwave ovens, the richest kids on the block. We'll have them first, but pretty soon everyone's dad's going to have one. Now, Wenner's piece about hacked killer sex robots is from 2017, but it made the Twitter rounds last week for reasons only known to the algorithms that rule our lives and will continue to rule our lives until Skynet is operational. But the premise makes sense. Our elections, our gas pipelines, our remotely locking male chastity devices, all hacked in recent years. So, of course, our sex robots are going to get hacked, too. And now, yeah, there's no graceful way to make this transition. So, a heads up, this week's opening is about to take a turn. Haha, killer sex robots. But now, here's a content warning for actual violence happening right now to actual people. Feel free to skip ahead if you prefer this week's intro to end on a light note about hypothetical violence because I'm about to mention actual violence. Here we go. That four-year-old headline about killer sex robots popped up in my Twitter feed between two links, sandwiched between two links to two other stories, both about people getting killed, women, both about women getting killed by their sex partners. One was about a woman shot and killed by her ex-boyfriend in Texas, and the other was about a woman stabbed to death in Virginia, also by her ex-boyfriend. Neither of those ex-boyfriends were robots. That same day, I saw links to stories about a woman in New York who was dismembered by her boyfriend and a man in Alabama who shot his wife. She actually lived. Authorities arrested the man and took away his guns. But then they released the man who shot his wife. And 16 days later, they gave him back his guns over his wife's objections. And then he shot her again. And this time, he killed her. 
Political violence against women was also making the news last week. Pennsylvania's GOP and dude-dominated state legislature approved a bill this session that would require women who have miscarriages to fill out a form and pay a fine for having a miscarriage. Texas GOP state legislators, also mostly men, overwhelmingly male, looked at what their overwhelmingly male counterparts in Pennsylvania were up to and thought, shit, we can top that. So Texas just approved a ban on abortion at six weeks, as you may have heard. Six weeks, of course, is before most women realize they're pregnant, and it gets worse. The Texas law, which is headed for the Supreme Court, which is very likely to overturn Roe v. Wade next session, that new Texas law makes no exceptions for rape or incest, and it gets worse. The new law in Texas allows private citizens to sue anyone they suspect of having helped a woman get an abortion. So... Let's say you drove your daughter to an abortion clinic in another state, a state where women can still get abortions after six weeks. You could be sued by your daughter's ex-boyfriend, by your next-door neighbor, by your pastor, by your employer, by an employee, or by a barista who overheard you talking about it with a friend, or by your violent ex-husband. Any one of them can sue you if they suspect you helped your daughter get an abortion. They can all sue you. All of the above can sue you. You know, when we talk about sex robots, we usually assume it's men who want to buy sex robots. But when you consider that women are far likelier to be murdered by a boyfriend or a husband than a stranger, when you consider the current realities of domestic and intimate partner violence, which I witnessed in my own family, who could blame women for deciding to take their chances on robots instead? Given a choice between sex robots that might get hacked and might hurt them over the actual human males in bedrooms and state legislatures that are hurting them right now, the choice to me seems like a pretty obvious one. All right, coming up on today's show, on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the magnum edition, Dr. Justin Lay Miller returns to talk with me about some listeners' problematic fantasies. All that coming up on today's Lovecast. Hey, Dan, I'm calling with a sex success story. So I'm a woman in my mid-40s. I've been married almost 20 years, and the last several years, four or five, have been very hard. I've been very unhappy. I knew I needed to leave my husband, but, you know, it's complicated. So about four years ago, I met this guy through work. He is much younger than me. He's almost 15 years younger than I am. And he's just hot. And just the minute I met him, we were both like, oh, boy, this is a problem. And I have basically spent the last four years trying not to fuck this dude, which has not been easy. So when the pandemic hit, I just had to get real about, you know, how I wanted to spend the rest of my life and what mattered to me. And... I left my husband and I started fucking the young guy and it is amazing. It is amazing. I'm having the best sex of my life. I sometimes come 20 plus times just like in one makeout session. Like I don't even know how to say it. It's just, it has changed my life. I am so happy that I did the hard thing and I just want to thank you for teaching me that prioritizing really good sex and my own happiness was valid and, and worthy and not selfish or crazy. And I'm just 
so grateful that I did the hard work. I hope that other people might hear this and know that they can do it too. The campsite rule, leave them in better shape than you found them. I hope you're keeping that in mind as you date this much younger man from work. And I hope you're being careful about that from work thing too. But the campsite rule, leave them in better shape than you found them. I originally coined it to mean, you know, what an older person needs to really bear in mind while they're dating a much younger person. You want to honor the campsite rule, not just for relationships with age or power disparities anymore. The campsite rule, leave them in better shape than you found them. I think it also applies to hmm, ex-spouses. So caller, I hope you're doing everything you can in your power to make this divorce as amicable as possible and that you and your husband are both endeavoring to leave each other in better shape than you found each other. All right. Thank you for calling in and sharing your success story. Listener, if you have a great sex success story that you would like to share, you don't have to hit the 20 orgasm in one makeout session. Mark, your success story can be different. Call us and share, and we might open next week's show with your success story. Hi, Jim. I am a 30-year-old cis straight female in Pennsylvania. So I've basically been single for like six years until recently. The guy that I was seeing for about four months and me decided to, you know, actually be in a relationship. And it's really, really great. It's definitely like the most healthy relationship and just general dating experience that I've had. My last long-term relationship was really mentally abusive and emotionally abusive. And it was pretty long-term, like six and a half years. So I think that has left me not damaged, but like a little bit messed up from it. And, you know, with any abusive or toxic relationships that tends to trickle down into the sexual aspect of things. And it definitely did with that one. So it's sometimes okay, but 50 to 70% of the time, whenever me and my new boyfriend, you know, start doing things, it's like, I enjoy it and I'm having fun. But a lot of the times I'm just so in my head and just thinking about anything. I have some combination of anxiety and OCD and a lot of intrusive thoughts. So as soon as those things start to bubble up in my brain, I just kind of basically immediately lose the ability to get off. And that's just been like really frustrating. I mean, I still obviously really, really enjoy having sex with him. It's really great, but I just need to work on actually being there instead of just kind of being in my head. Um, so if you had any advice on ways to deal with that or improve that aspect, that would be rad. I do have a few suggestions for you. The first one would be to give yourself a whole lot of credit. You were in an emotionally uh, and mentally abusive relationship for six years that 50 to 70% of the time you're present and 100% of the time you're able to enjoy sex with your new wonderful boyfriend of four months, you're doing pretty well. That said, working with a cognitive behavioral therapist, working with a shrink, a pro who specializes in that kind of CBT could be very helpful. It's very helpful with intrusive thoughts, not eradicating them or eliminating them, but helping you to process and understand and contextualize them, hopefully in ways that make it possible for you to be present during sex. Uh, and able to climax each and every time you wish to climax and want to climax during sex with your boyfriend. I have one other suggestion, though, for you and your boyfriend. If you've shared this with him, and if he's as wonderful as you say that he is, you should be able to share this with him. 
when you experience that kind of falling out, when those intrusive thoughts enter your head that make it impossible for you to climax, but yet still possible for you to, to enjoy sex. So in a way you are present. Uh, so again, give yourself some credit there. It may help. This is going to sound like a weird prescription after very formally uh, recommending cognitive behavioral therapy. Some dirty talk may help. A conversation with your boyfriend during sex. Now, some people balk at dirty talk. They're like, oh my God, I don't know what to say. And my prescription is always uh, tell him what you're about to do. Tell him what you're doing. Tell him what you did. I'm going to fuck the shit out of you. I am fucking the shit out of you. I fucked the shit out of you. Whatever you guys are doing in the moment, if you it feels too awkward to share a fantasy if you don't want to talk about something else you've done or might do or want to do to talk literally about what you are doing at that moment when I guess disassociate would be too strong a word for what you're experiencing. But when you kind of fall out of the sex and you feel a little bit more disconnected, even though it's still pleasurable and you're still enjoying it to just engage with your boyfriend at that moment, to ask him to engage with you at that moment and have a conversation with you to, to, to talk and talking and dirty talking or just describing what you're doing or telling each other how much you're enjoying what you're doing. It may help not again, eradicate those intrusive thoughts, but push them away and allow you to feel more present, literally present in what you're doing at that moment, because you are talking about what you're doing at that moment and more of your mind will be engaged so I would recommend a two-pronged approach here. If you haven't already, see a professional. If you've already seen a professional, but you didn't do CBT or didn't work with a shrink who does CBT, find one who does this kind of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and have a conversation with your boyfriend at a moment that's relaxed but intimate, not when you're having sex, where you lay this out for him, where you share, if you haven't already shared, this issue you're having during sex 50% of the time, 30% of the time, where your inner monologue kind of shuts you down a little bit physically, blocks you from uh, achieving orgasm with him every time as you would like to. And at those moments, you want to be able to ask if you guys aren't verbal during sex for some verbalization, for some conversation, for some dirty talk. Again, so that that outer monologue, that engagement with your boyfriend in the moment when you're having sex and crowds out those intrusive thoughts, that twat blocking inner monologue. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and sorry. I am a single gay man in my 30s in a major city, and I have a sex worker etiquette question for you. For various reasons over the years, I have gone to get massages from certain men's spas with the assumption of a happy ending. It started as a way to feel more comfortable with my own body, and then during COVID as a safer way to get some physical touch. So I found a masseuse who gives really good massages and has have been a repeat customer about once a month for the last six months. The last two times I have gone, once I was on my back, he moved up and urged me to give him a blowjob while he did his thing. Since I'm fully vaccinated, I didn't resist at all. Now I'm wondering if it would be appropriate to ask if he does outcalls or sees clients outside of the spa. Is there a best practices here? Can I include a note in my tip with my number? Since it's technically against the law here, I'm hesitant to just ask in the room. I wasn't sure if there was an unspoken rule I might be breaking and who else to ask but you. Thanks, Dan. If anyone was breaking the rules here, spoken or unspoken, I think it may have been this body worker, this masseuse who asked if you wouldn't mind giving him a blowjob while he worked on your body. He shoved his dick down your throat while he 
finished doing whatever it is uh, he was being paid to do to you. Funny. I mean, I'm kind of amused by your call because in a way you provided the masseuse with the happy ending when usually when it's a body worker, a sex worker, that goes the other way around. Usually it's the body worker who provides the client with the happy ending, but you got to provide the masseuse with a happy ending. Not that there isn't something in giving a blowjob to somebody that you're into and who's hot that you want to blow. That's certainly a happy ending, a happy beginning for many people. Sucking dick is awesome. Seems to me with him having crossed that line, he opened the door and you're not only free to walk through it in a way you've already walked through it. You guys have had sexual contact during a session. If you want to meet with him privately, if you want to meet with him outside the spa, if that's something that he might be open to, go ahead and ask. Feel free to ask. When you consider the question he asked you, would you blow him, versus the question you'd like to ask him, do you see clients outside of the spa, his ask was a lot bigger than your ask. And I think his ask opens the door or the mouth to your ask. So go ahead, ask, ask in the room or write it down next time you're there, hand it to him with his tip, with your phone number. I'm pretty sure you'll get an answer from him one way or the other. And my hunch is you're going to get the answer from him that you'd like to get. Hi, Dan. I am a late thirties, cisgender female, atheist, in Texas, I identify as mostly straight, but questioning, and I live a poly lifestyle. So this is a question about my relationship with my dad. I was actually pretty much raised exclusively by my mom and my grandma. My dad has been in and out of my life my entire life, um, all the way through childhood and into adulthood. But we kind of reconnected at some point in my early 20s because I found out he'd gotten married. I had a half-brother now. And so, you know, I just kind of let the past be the past and reconnected with him. I did realize, like, that it was going to be a little difficult because he had expressed some, like, racist, quite frankly, just, like, outdated views to me in the past, wrapped up in the cloth of Christianity, if you will. He insists he's no longer racist, but we never really had deep conversations. It was really always just about me reconnecting with my brother. About three years ago, you know, I started practicing polyamory. I had a trans girlfriend and everything just kind of came to a head at that point. I had to go no contact with his wife, who is way more aggressive and manipulative in her tactics of, you know, spreading the word of Jesus. We'll, we'll leave it at that. And... I don't really know what to do about my dad. Two years ago, my grandma died and, you know, it just put a lot of things in perspective as far as, you know, my God, these people are going to die one day. (laughs) But it's really hard to connect with somebody or maintain this buddy-buddy relationship when their Facebook is filled with all of this homophobic, transphobic, anti-LGBTQ, like anti-feminism shit and be okay with having that person in my life. I hear all the time about how my only leverage is my presence. I don't want to support his views by ignoring them and just trying to maintain this surface level relationship. But I keep going back to what if something were to happen? What if he were to die? We did have a scare a few years ago and I was upset, but is that enough of a reason to put up with this to be friends with him? Am I supporting his bigotry? Am I going to regret 
not being a part of my dad's life. When he does die, he doesn't throw these views in my face, but I know they're there. What do I do, Dan? Everybody's going to die one day. You, me, everybody. We used to comfort ourselves. Progressives used to comfort ourselves amongst ourselves quietly, morbidly with the thought that one day these beliefs, racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, anti-immigrant, anti-choice beliefs would die off with the older people who were likelier to hold them. But now with social media and now with the great disinhibitor that was Donald and still is Donald J. Trump, these ideas, these beliefs, these hatreds continue to spread. Thank you, Mark fucking Zuckerberg. So we're not just in a position where we can wait this shit out in the hopes that one day a more progressive electorate, a more progressive population would just kind of naturally replace people who hold the beliefs that your dad and stepmom hold, which puts us in a position of having to confront these people, particularly if they're our peers and having to use what leverage we have over them to at least get them to think about what they're doing and to confront them with consequences for holding those beliefs. And those consequences, when it comes to relationships with their adult children, boil down to not getting to see your adult children or not getting to see much of your adult children. That's the leverage you have, your presence. Your presence is your leverage. I say all this feeling a tad bit hypocritical because I have a relationship with my dad where we talk about stuff and we don't talk about who he voted for in 2020 or 2016 or 2012 or 2008 or 2004 or 2000. And we don't talk about immigration and we don't talk or I won't talk to him when Fox News is blaring in the background, which I know that it is when the phone rings and I know that it will be again shortly after we get off the phone. So I don't want to be a hypocrite and tell you not to have a relationship with your father at all, not to engage with your father at all while I engage with mine. I do confront my dad when he says things to me that I think are retrograde or bigoted and ignorant but I care about my dad and I want to stay in touch with my dad and I do on my own terms. You aren't obligated to have any contact with your stepmother and if when you show up in person, your stepmother seizes that opportunity to abuse you and abuse your partners and condemn your quote unquote poly lifestyle or go after while you're there trans people because she knows that you've dated a trans person or are dating a trans person or remember, don't see her. Don't show up. If you're in town and you want to see your dad, have your dad meet you somewhere and be clear with your dad about why you're not making yourself present in his home because you don't want to subject yourself to the abuse of his wife. And if he wants you to be present, well, then he needs to work on that. He needs to confront his wife about not giving you grief so that you feel safe coming into the house. And she's going to have to turn off the bullshit, turn off the Christian fundamentalist, evangelical Christian proselytizing bullshit long enough for you to have a visit that's pleasant. And if she can't, well, then you're not going to visit. You're not going to see her and you're only going to see your father away from his house or you're only going to speak to your father on the phone. You can have those sorts of boundaries. You can set those sorts of boundaries and not just with step parents, also with blood relations. And I think you should, and I think we should. 
by no means do I endorse letting racist, sexist, transphobic relations, family members off the hook. We have to confront, particularly white people, I think, have a responsibility to confront and cis people, our relatives about their bigotry. And we need to draw lines and we need to make it clear to them that their attitudes and their beliefs are harmful. But the only way we can confront our relatives about their bigoted beliefs is to maintain some place in their lives, is to maintain some contact with them. I think it's fine for that contact to be conditional or semi-conditional. We're in touch. We're talking on the condition that you not say bigoted things to me or in front of me. And then every once in a while, if you see something particularly offensive on Facebook, and it sounds like maybe every time you go to your dad's Facebook page, you see offensive shit, you should confront him about that shit. Choose your times, choose your battles, state your piece, and then change your subject and hope that the cognitive dissonance that your father will experience after you have that kind of confrontation with him, after you have that kind of conversation with him, and then hope that the cognitive dissonance that you've instilled after you have that kind of difficult confrontational conversation with your father will prompt him to think about it, even as he may continue to post some shitty, bigoted, stupid bullshit. Hopefully he will be doing some deeper thinking about it and trying to reconcile his feelings for you, his affection for you, the person that he knows you to be with his political beliefs. And one day he will come to the realization that he's going to have to let go of his political beliefs to have the kind of relationship with you that he would like to have, that he's going to choose you over hate. And if it never comes to that, well, one day you're going to bury him along with his Facebook page. Hi, Dan. I'm a 31-year-old queer poly married lady married to a late 30s pan man. And we recently came to the difficult decision to separate because of a lot of reasons, but mostly because of some really intense sexual incompatibility. For I would say about the past three years, there has been nothing, literally nothing. And this was primarily because my husband was not interested in sex at all with me, with anyone else, just not at all. We talked a lot about if he's asexual. We talked a lot about uh, maybe there's something biological going on. But it just kind of got to the point where we both recognized that this marriage wasn't what we needed it to be anymore. And since we've made that decision, his sex drive is through the fucking roof. Like, he cannot keep his hands to himself. He wants to fuck all the time. it's like we, it's like it was when we were first dating. And I just want to know, like, what the fuck? Where was this energy three years ago? What's going on? I don't know what the fuck. I can only speculate as to what the fuck. Your husband might be able to tell you what the fuck if he can articulate what the fuck, but maybe he's not able to articulate what the fuck. Maybe he doesn't understand it any better than you do. My hunch is that he's one of those people who doesn't want to fuck who he's supposed to fuck and does want to fuck who he's not supposed to fuck. And he was supposed to fuck you when you were married. He was supposed to fuck you before you were separated. And perhaps that made fucking you less arousing for him. Maybe he needs something transgressive going down 
to be horny and maybe being expected to fuck you and you being the only sex partner he's allowed to have just drained away uh, the erotics for him. It, it kneecapped his erotic imagination or his ability to, to, to tap into arousal and desire. And suddenly now that you're separating, now that you're not supposed to be fucking anymore, now that you're officially not his sex partner anymore and sex with you is wrong and confusing and therefore exciting, he suddenly wants to fuck you again. That would be my hunch. That would be my guess. You can take that to him. You can say that to him. You can ask him if that's what the fuck is going on here. And who knows if that is what's going on, maybe it'll click and he'll have a deeper understanding of his erotic imagination and how it functions and arousal and how arousal works for him. Or maybe he'll lie to you and deny it. Maybe it's buried. Maybe he's not able to tap into it or recognize it. But yeah, what the fuck is going on? I don't know. Something the fuck is going on here. Something definitely is going on here. If he was not interested in sex with his wife for the last three years, but is suddenly very interested in sex with the woman who is leaving him. Well, again, that could be transgression. Also, it could be manipulation. If you're leaving this relationship because the sex wasn't there, he wasn't there for you erotically, sexually, in the ways that you needed him to be, in ways that you had a reasonable expectation when you married, he would be. He could be giving you just enough right now. He could be giving you a lot right now in the hopes that you'll change your mind and stay. The risk, of course, if you change your mind and stay is that it'll stop again. If you want to stay, if you want to reunite with your husband before you divorce because things have changed, that's perfectly reasonable. You could do that. If things instantly or gradually change back, that's the proof you need that this was consciously or subconsciously an effort on his part to manipulate you into staying by giving you what he had been denying you before. And then you should end it once and for all and for good, no matter how much he wants to fuck you after the second time you've left him. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at risk youth. I'm a married mom of three in her 30s, hiding in her bathroom so that I can try and record this uninterrupted. Just before the pandemic began, my husband and I were finally out of that phase of life with very young kids and all that that did to torpedo our sex life. After one last particularly productive argument, we reached a good mutual understanding, such that last spring and summer, I could have been calling in with any number of sex success stories. Then last fall, as I was teaching all three kids from home and working full-time from home, one day I was looking for a school document on my husband's tablet that we often use to download work on. When I found a GIF on his Google Drive that combined some random set of jiggly boobs with my sister's face, the date stamp said it was made approximately a year before I found it. When confronted, my husband was embarrassed and apologetic but not very forthcoming on why he made it. He said he made one of me first, as if that would somehow make me feel better. It didn't. He said he felt weird about making them, so he deleted them right after he made them, not realizing they would remain on his Google Drive. Mysteriously, that one of me didn't seem to be there. He assures me he doesn't want that type of relationship with my sister, and I believe him. He independently acknowledged that he made that already difficult relationship in my life more complicated. He's used the pandemic to keep his distance from my sister. 
but that time is ending. Soon we'll be together for my nephew's small outdoor wedding. And months later, this still bothers me. I have forgiven him, and our sex life has rebounded. But I still get anxious any time they might be near each other. I think about it even when I don't want to, and it makes me feel terrible. If it had been some random pornographic image, I doubt I'd still be thinking about this at all. I plan to explore therapy and EMDR, but I won't be able to devote the time or energy to that until next fall when all my kids finally return to school. I want to get over this, and I know it won't ruin our relationship, but it still bothers me. What can I do to get past this now? I feel like I should hold your call for six months or a year until after you're in therapy because I don't want to make things worse before you can get into therapy, before you can speak to somebody about this. But I guess I'm going to answer your call now. Your husband left a word out of that statement when he said he doesn't want that kind of relationship with your sister. That's a little opaque, that kind of relationship. What kind of relationship does he mean? But I think the missing word was actually. He doesn't actually want to have a sexual relationship with your sister. He doesn't actually want to cheat on you, his wife, with your sister. But he's thought about it clearly and and he's fantasized about it. Not everyone wants to act on every fantasy, particularly every transgressive, fucked up fantasy that they have. But that doesn't mean he hasn't fantasized about it. That's not something you want to contemplate. It wasn't something he wanted you to contemplate, but you saw what you saw and you were forced to contemplate it. And he told you when you confronted him, he told you what perhaps you wanted to hear, maybe what you needed to hear, but what you both kind of knew was a lie that he didn't want that kind of relationship with your sister. Kind of a lie because he didn't define what he meant by that kind of relationship. Kind of a lie because he didn't tag the word actually on there. And I think that's where you're stumbling. You want to believe him. You want to believe the lie that he's told you that he didn't just make this gif about your sister. He also made a similar one about you that somehow isn't in the trash or isn't lingering on his tablet. But he has you and you two have a great sexual relationship. When he wants to see your tits, he can see your tits. I assume he's never seen your sister's tits and never will. And his mind went there. And our erotic imaginations are complicated, fucked up, weird things. And they sometimes go places, not just that everyone agrees they shouldn't go, but that we ourselves wish they didn't go. Your husband may have experienced these fantasies about your sister as nearly as intrusive and unwelcome as you've experienced having to think about your husband fantasizing about your sister. But it doesn't change the fact that your husband seems to have had a fantasy about your sister. I think it's a good sign that you didn't find dozens of files packed with images of your sister. Maybe this was fleeting in passing. Maybe he thought about it, gift about it for a moment, gift about it at least for a moment, and then attempted to course correct, stuff it down the memory hole. And I think that's your only option here. You need to accept the truth that as awkward and uncomfortable and blecky as it is, your husband at one point during your long marriage had an inappropriate and perhaps even for him unwelcome fantasy about someone else in his extended family, an in-law who happens to be your sister. Doesn't mean your husband doesn't love you. Doesn't mean your husband is a bad person. 
I think if you give it a moment's thought, there may be things that you've thought about passing sexual fantasies that you knew were fucked up and wrong, that you would never want anyone in your life, particularly your husband, to know about. And luckily for your husband, he doesn't know about those unwelcome, fucked up, weird, what the fuck was that fantasies that you may have had over the course of your long marriage that you didn't create gifts about for him to stumble over. So I think what you need to do here for your peace of mind is to accept the truth. Your husband had a fantasy about your sister. And then again, for your own peace of mind, you extend to your husband the benefit of the doubt and perhaps some grace that this wasn't a welcome fantasy for him either, that this was an unpleasant fantasy for him, that this wasn't something he cultivated over time and it's not something he wants. That it was perhaps as much of a torment to him as it ended up being for you. Hi, Dan. Long-time listener calling from Germany. I have a question about circumcision and the ethical repercussions of it. My son was born with a condition called hypospadias. It's basically a shortening of the urethra. It had to be corrected surgically, and that all went very well. The condition itself is also very common, so no problems there. The thing is, his foreskin is also pretty deformed. It's very bulgy on one side and almost non-existent on the other, and it just doesn't look, let's say, normal. Now, a surgeon said we could have it removed later, or we could just leave it as it is. The question is, should we make this decision, have him circumcised, to try to spare him some of the trouble he may have with peers or maybe with girlfriends, make this decision for him? Or should we just wait and let him decide when he comes of age whether he wants to get circumcised or not? Uh, at the risk of him getting bullied for it, maybe, or maybe getting shamed for it by girlfriends until that point or whatever. Because you worry your son might be bullied or that his first girlfriends might shame him in a way that creates hangups, you're contemplating having an irrevocable surgical procedure performed on your son and, and changing his genitals to, to, to make them normal so that he doesn't get bullied or picked on. Well, a circumcised boy in Germany where circumcision is very uncommon may get picked on for being circumcised. That would also be non-normative over there. So I think you should err on the side of leaving your son's dick alone and letting him, as he gets a little bit older, participate in making an informed decision about what to do, if anything, about his foreskin. There are folks out there who try to restore their foreskins by stretching the skin that was left back out to recreate it. It may be possible as your son ages that he may need a surgical procedure to correct for the misshapen foreskin. It may cause him uh, problems uh, with masturbation or sex as he gets older, but doing something about it, having a surgical medical intervention that he gets to have a say in, that his consent can be obtained, and it can't be obtained now because he's an infant, 
that as a percent can be obtained, you may be able to salvage some of his foreskin. There may be a surgical procedure after he's grown into his dick a little bit where it's not going to be as radical an intervention as removing his entire foreskin. Perhaps there's going to be enough skin there to salvage something of a foreskin and he would like to continue to have something of a foreskin. Or maybe he'll want it gone. And of course, if there are more medical problems that have to be addressed, you may find yourself in a position where the foreskin has to be removed. But if right now it's just about cosmetics, if right now it's just about mom worrying that he might get picked on when all the boys in fourth grade show each other their dicks, which is not a thing that happens, you shouldn't do it. Err on the side of allowing your son to have his own dick and make his own decisions about his own dick and his own foreskin in good time, so long as the foreskin he's got now isn't causing him discomfort or any medical problems, leave that dick alone. Let him make an informed decision. And a kid who's 8, 9, 10, 11, so pre-puberty or heading into puberty and pre-first partnered sex, that kid can be involved in a conversation about his genitals. It'll be embarrassing with mom, of course, to have that conversation, but he can be involved in that conversation then with you, with his pediatrician. And so then even if he still has his procedure done as a minor, he will have had some say and some control in the decision that was made. And it should be a decision that he ultimately gets to make for himself. Hi, Dan, 24-year-old cishet woman living in Western Canada. I am a passionate feminist and confident, independent, and driven in my everyday life. I also have non-consent fantasies. Most of my fantasies involve a power dynamic in which I'm being manipulated or forced into sex and am the object of desire by an older man, group of men, or a man with power, teacher, priest, boss, you name it. This was always something that did it for me, even when I was quite young. I thought I accepted this contradiction between my fantasies and values, but recently shared the full extent of my fantasies and their non-consensual nature with my boyfriend, who is the first person I've ever told about this. I even showed him some examples of the type of porn I like. He was amazing about it and excited that I was sharing the full extent of what I was into with him, but I was surprised at how much shame popped up for me when watching those videos all based on my own thoughts about how I shouldn't be into stuff like that. I recently listened to another podcast where they were specifically talking about consensual non-consent. They were saying this is a really common fantasy, and I've heard you mention on here that there was a study that showed this to be the case as well. If that's true, this would feel similar to when I discovered that most women don't come from internal stimulation alone and discovered there wasn't something deeply wrong with me. I'm wondering in your years of hearing people's stories, which is really collecting anecdotal evidence, if you, you've experienced this to be a common fantasy, particularly in people of my demographic. I'm also wondering if you have any resources to recommend for people like myself who aren't as over the shame as they thought when it comes to their non-consent fantasies. Joining me to help tackle this question, Dr. Justin Lay Miller, a research fellow at the Kinsey Institute, author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, and host of the Sex and Psychology podcast. Hey, Dr. Lay Miller, thank you for coming back on the show. I really appreciate it. Hey, Dan, thanks for having me. So this fantasy, non-consent fantasies, rape fantasies, ravishment fantasies, the shame around them seems to exist in direct proportion to their ubiquity. How is that? This is a very common fantasy, is it not? It's a super common fantasy, and I found this in my own 
research on fantasies. Uh, for my book, Tell Me What You Want, I surveyed more than 4,000 Americans about what turns them on. And I found that these consensual non-consent fantasies were very common across gender and sexual orientation. A majority of people reported having fantasized about them. But people who identified as women fantasized about them the most often and the most frequently. In fact, I found that about two-thirds of the women I surveyed had fantasies about this subject before. And we see in a lot of other studies in this area that these fantasies are reported very frequently, particularly among women. We're both gay men. Did your data break out for gay men around these kinds of fantasies? Because I find that this is one of those things that gay men seem to have in common with straight women, these kinds of fantasies around consensual non-consent, although there seem to be less stigma about them in gay male communities because there's less of a threat of actual sexual violence being directed against men. Yes, and I do see that in the data that men who identify as anything other than heterosexual are more likely to report these types of fantasies, but they also tend to report kinkier fantasies in general. And I think part of that may be because they've already transgressed the you know sort of norm of heterosexuality, and so that might open the door to more sexual self-exploration. But I think you're right that there is a big difference between men and women in terms of how they think about the risk of sexual assault and sexual violence. And so I, I think there is a little less shame and stigma amongst, say, gay and bisexual men who have this fantasy compared to heterosexually identified women. I think there's two different dynamics at work here. Uh, I often theorized thought that uh, observed that people eroticize their fears and sexual violence and rape is a fear that all women live with. And I think that may be at the root of why so many women have this fantasy that they'd like to explore, you know, their deepest fears in a safe and controlled way with a consenting partner who respects them. Uh, I also think that for a lot of gay men, they, it's almost a different route, uh, these fantasies around consensual non-consent. I know that when I was a young gay man uh, and closeted, I sort of wished, you know, consensual non-consent things would happen to me. The kind of sex I wanted to have would happen to me without me having to take any responsibility for it, without me having to ask for it or afterwards feel guilty about having done it because it was done to me, which I guess is my way of saying to the caller, I have these fantasies too. <laughs> and, you know, I think you make an important point and I see this backed up in my data, which is that, you know, the degree to which we fantasize about this might change with age and where we are in our lives. And I actually see in my data that when you plot BDSM related fantasies, and that includes these forced sex or consensual non-consent fantasies, that they're actually highest among younger adults in the late teens and, and 20s bracket, and they tend to decline in frequency over time. And I think part of that might reflect differences in our psychological needs at different points in time, different stages of life. And so what turns us on may evolve and change along with that. I have to say when uh, we, I got to the part of her question, when we got to the part of her call where she said she was sharing her fantasies for the very first time with a boyfriend, with a partner, I was nervous for her about his reaction. Often when people share their fantasies, their non-normative fantasies with a partner for the first time, they can get a negative reaction and that can really just blow them up. It can really take whatever shame or lingering shame they think they feel or they thought they've wrestled into a corner and, and, and seize control of. It can just explode it. But her partner had a positive reaction. He didn't kink shame her. 
He didn't try to make her feel bad. He was honored that she felt safe enough with him to open up. And yet her shame seems to have multiplied. What do you think that she can do to, to overcome it again? Yeah, it, it's such an important question. And I think it is worth mentioning that it's great that her partner had a positive reaction to her sharing her fantasy because that fear of shame and judgment coming from your partner is one of the biggest things that holds people back from sharing their fantasies in the first place, no matter what they are. So when people have positive experiences with it, that that's great. You know, that's what we want. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're not going to feel any shame having done so, especially if it's our first time, because we really made ourselves vulnerable, put ourselves out there, and we then have to start thinking about things in a different way. And so if the caller is still experiencing shame, I think there's a few things that are important. One is first recognizing that this is a really common fantasy. That's something that can help a lot of people and feeling that they're not alone in having this. But another part of it is what is the source of that shame? Why are you feeling this way? And I've talked to a lot of women who the source of the shame stems from this conflict between their sexual turn-ons and then their broader social values. And this is something that psychologists refer to as cognitive dissonance, where when you've got that discrepancy or inconsistency, it creates this state of psychological discomfort. And so we need to find a way of reducing that discomfort. And this can happen in a lot of different ways, but one might be sort of cognitively reframing, you know, what those consensual non-consent fantasies are and what they mean and recognizing that you can be turned on by that. And it doesn't make you a traitor to feminism or a traitor to the cause of me too. Uh, so it, part of it might require just sort of this shift in thinking. And if you can't resolve that on your own, that's where talking with a certified sex therapist to work through the issue and figure out the real source of the shame can be really helpful. And you shouldn't say to yourself, because there's this place that my erratic imagination goes, that that is in conflict, like you said, with my politics or my values, or I have to let one or the other go. I have to stop being a feminist or stop being turned on by the things that I'm turned on by. You can't stop being turned on by the things you're turned on by. That's really, although, as you said, people evolve and sometimes fantasies more for change and become less intense. You can't let go of your fantasies. And I don't want you to let go of your feminist politics or principles. So have both. Hold on to both. Right. And I think it's worth mentioning that most of us have some fantasies that are politically incorrect. And where there will be this discrepancy or seeming discrepancy between what turns us on and what our values are. And that's okay. Is it a discrepancy though? Sometimes I think those fantasies that seem like such a mirror image are almost a, re a reflection of how intensely felt our social values are, or our politics are that in our erotic imagination, we want to be released from it. We want to go play and be the opposite. And it's not that the cognitive dissonance is something that we have to resolve. It's something we have to recognize as driving what's erotic about our fantasies. Right. And, you know, this is also something that lines up with my data where I find that those who identify as Democrats and as politically liberal have more BDSM kinky forced sex fantasies. Uh, you know, there is this linkage there. And I think it's because power play is something that is more of a taboo on the left than it is on the right. And so that leads to this sort of greater eroticization 
of it. And so, you know, that's just sort of part of the human experience is that we're turned on by what is taboo and what we're told we're not supposed to want. And that's just a part of the erotic mind. Does it ever work for someone to say to themselves, I shouldn't be into stuff like that, as the caller says, she sometimes thinks. Does that ever work? I shouldn't be into that. Has anybody ever said that? Has anyone ever said that to themselves and been instantly cured of their kinks or fantasies that seem transgressive? So a lot of people have said that to themselves. I don't know of any cases where that has worked. I do get asked frequently, can I change my sexual fantasies? How do I get rid of this fantasy that I don't want anymore or that makes me uncomfortable? And there aren't really any established ways of getting rid of a sexual fantasy. Your turn-ons are what they are. And while I did say that your fantasies can change over the course of your lifespan, it's not because we're choosing to have different fantasies. It's that our fantasies are meeting our psychological needs and our needs change at different points in time. And so sometimes our fantasies change along with that. So it doesn't really work to say, I don't want this fantasy and to try to suppress thoughts of it because that's counterproductive and actually leads to an obsessive preoccupation with those thoughts that can be psychologically distressing. So you have to learn to be comfortable with your fantasies, to find a way of accepting them as as part of who you are and recognizing that it's okay to be turned on by things that seem politically incorrect to you. Can we keep you on the line for a couple other calls? Sure. Hi, Dan. I am 23. I am living on the West Coast. And I just have a question for you. Can women have a Madonna whore complex? My ex-boyfriend, shitty guy, really treated me badly. He like cheated on me. Just was just awful to me. But the sex was bonkers good. Like we were kinky and so dirty. We sexted all the time. All I wanted to do was fuck him. Like literally, I've never had such good sex in my life. Like we were addicted to fucking each other. And the sex is exactly the kind of sex that like I masturbate to. Like it was like degrading. Like we did, you know, he tied me up. It was like we had sex in public places, obviously, like not where people could see us, but like it was like all the kinds of stuff that like gets me off. It was amazing. But now I have a new boyfriend who I love dearly, who treats me well. We have so much fun. He makes me laugh. He would never do any of the like shitty boyfriend things that my ex-boyfriend did. And the sex we have is great. He's so fucking hot. Uh, we have like beautiful sex. I always come and it's really like fun and lovely, but it's not like kinky or dirty. And sometimes when he tries to do the same kind of stuff that my ex-boyfriend did with me, it brings me out of it because I'm like, this new boyfriend would never do that. Like he doesn't really want to call me a slut. He's just doing it because I ask him to, and it doesn't feel as good. And I don't feel as like satisfied. I don't really know how to talk to him about it because it's like, I don't know. We have, we have this like gorgeous relationship where he really deeply respects me and, and we talk about everything good. And then when he calls me a slut or ties me up, it just feels like way out of context. Um, maybe I like just need to go to therapy and, and deal with the fact that I want to have sex with people who fundamentally disrespect me. But like, what is going on there? So Dr. Lee Miller, the Madonna whore complex, we've been hearing about this for, I don't know, a hundred years. Is it a thing? Is it a real thing? It is a thing, um, for sure. But when I heard this call, what I was thinking more about is how sometimes the people that 
really turn us on, that we're really attracted to, are often not the people who would make the best long-term relationship partners for us. And so there's often this discrepancy between who we're aroused by and who we want to be in a relationship with. And that's you know, a pretty normal thing. And I think it's also worth mentioning that when you ask people what they want in a romantic partner, you know, reliably at the top of the list, it's things like kindness, honesty, sense of humor, all these positive traits. But paradoxically, people often also report attraction to partners with really dark and antisocial personality traits like narcissism and, you know, people who are manipulative and and not nice to them. So, you know, it's, this kind of weird part of sexual attraction is that, you know, we're often what we say we want doesn't necessarily line up with who we're attracted to sexually. And we tell people they have to find one partner that they can't have the kind, decent, loving person, like the great boyfriend that the caller says she has now, and they have awesome sex. And that's wonderful that she can't have him and all that awesome sex. And then, hopefully in a consensually non-monogamous fashion, ethically non-monogamous fashion, every once in a while, find someone who she can get her kink on with. And, and the kink can feel to her more authentic with that other partner who's not her life partner, not the person she wants to be in a relationship with and, and nest with, and have both. And that is one way that some people find is effective to manage cases where what their primary partner wants isn't necessarily the same as what they want in bed. And so I've seen this, for example, in my own research on friends with benefits, uh, where some of my participants will say they only have kinky sex with their friend with benefits, but they only have vanilla sex with their primary partner. So for some people, that's a a strategy that works for them, but consensual non-monogamy isn't necessarily for everyone. And so, you know, there might be another way to go here, which is in terms of training your partner or coaching your partner in giving you more of what you want in bed. So maybe the partner isn't really experienced with this sort of kinky dynamic that she wants, but maybe she can coach him to get more of what she wants. And another thing that could be helpful here is, you know, it sounds like when she's in bed with her partner, she's in her head a lot Mm -hmm. and thinking about it and thinking about this discrepancy between who her partner is out of bed and who he is in bed. And so maybe it's mindfulness or finding some other way of being more in the moment during sex so that she's not in her head and sort of overanalyzing and thinking about the situation. I think she should accept that her partner may contain multitudes just as she does. She obviously doesn't regard herself as a slut who deserves to be degraded, but that's something she likes to step into every once in a while. And that may feel realer, more real with an asshole than it does with her partner. But she's, I guess she's assuming that her partner doesn't want to degrade her, doesn't enjoy degrading her, can't in, uh, from some angle or through some prism regard her as a slut and mean it when he calls her a slut. And just as she can enjoy being treated like a slut while knowing she's not, she should be able to allow him to enjoy calling her a slut in the moment when she's fucking her. Uh, well, at the same time, he knows that she's not or she's more than just that or that isn't an insult. Right. And I think, you know, that could be part of the solution. Part of the answer here is to recognize that there is complexity in everyone and that, you know, you can be a different person in different situations. And so yet another approach here is to 
think about this more through the lens of role play and maybe where you're sort of switching on and off between different roles at different points in the time that you're spending together. And maybe if you spend a little bit more time immersing yourself in this dynamic before you proceed to the bedroom, maybe it would feel more real or authentic in that way. And so you're not overthinking it and overanalyzing it. Great sex with a terrible person. We've all been there, right? Great sex with someone who we knew was awful and knew was wrong with us. Sometimes I think that itself can be a kind of a kink because risk and danger turn us on. And when we're with somebody and, you know, wrong, what's wrong, what's wrongness, transgression turns us on. And when we choose to make ourselves vulnerable, particularly if we have a submissive kind of fantasy framework, we choose to make ourselves vulnerable with somebody we know is terrible and bad for us. That can really all by itself excite us in a way that a trusted partner can't. And and I think you're right that part of the appeal of the partners with some of these darker personality traits is that they're taboo. We know they're not good for us. We know we shouldn't be attracted to them. And so that makes them more alluring in some ways. Um, But it's also often the case that people with some of these antisocial traits, particularly things like narcissism, they also spend more time investing in their appearance and having all of these indicators of attractiveness, things that are sexually and and socially valued surrounding them. And so that's also part of why we're often drawn uh, to those individuals as well. So whenever we're talking about attraction, it's this very complex thing. Hey, Dan, longtime listener, first time caller. I'm a single cis 26 year old female on the West Coast. And a couple of years ago at the Hump Film Fest, I saw the film My Cathartic Release about a gal who began her masochistic journey. I haven't stopped thinking about this since, and I want to try it out, but my concern is I've never attempted something like this, and other than listening to your podcast, I'm not too experienced with kink. So I'm hoping you can help me figure out where to start um, the search for finding a dom or partner who's willing to explore this with me. Should I go to virtual munches, um, create a FetLife profile, or maybe hire a professional sex worker? I'm just looking for some advice on how best to move forward safely. So, uh, Dr. Lee Miller, any advice for people who are just starting to explore kink, who want to get out there particularly as a sub uh, and find their first play partners? Yes. So there's a couple of things that I would say here. The first is do a bit of education on your own first, because if you're not really familiar with BDSM and how it works and the, the language and how consent and boundaries are communicated, it's really worthwhile to step back and do that research beforehand. Because when people walk into this world inexperienced, sometimes they get in over their head or they find themselves in a situation where they've gotten past their comfort zone and don't know how to get out of it. So some reading resources I could recommend would be the new topping book or the new bottoming book. And when I'm saying top and bottom in this case, we're not talking about sexual positions. We're talking about being dominant versus submissive. And so that can help you to learn a little bit more about what it is that you really want and how to communicate about that. And so once you've done the education next, don't rush into this. Like there's no pressure or time clock on when you have to find your dom. Take it slow and think about this as kind of an interview process where you're trying to find somebody who is a good fit for you that wants the same sort of dynamic that you do and that is going to be respectful of your boundaries. So take your time in finding that person. And you can do this online. You can do it in person. 
depends on the resources that are available in your area and also what your comfort level is. But online munches are one way to go. Exploring dating apps like Field that have a bit more of a focus on alternative sexual practices, you know, can help you to identify more like-minded people. Um, and there may also be some BDSM clubs in your local area that might have online or in-person events where you could explore this as well. That's all terrific advice. I, I would just add, there are bad actors in every scene, every community. Go into those munches and and kink play parties wherever else you're going to go with your bullshit detectors fired up. And if somebody makes you uncomfortable, get the hell away from that person in a really good way in kink scenes to know if a dom is a bad actor, is a dom who tells you that a real sub wouldn't dot, 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 whatever. A real sub wouldn't have limits, uh, ask these sorts of questions, uh, make these sorts of demands on me as a top. A real sub wouldn't. That is a red flag and you should run. You should also check out Lena Dune, Ask a Sub on Instagram, and The Girl Abides, another terrific educational resource for people interested in Dom Sub Play on Instagram. Dr. Justin Lay Miller, Research Fellow at Kinsey Institute. Please, everybody out there, pick up his terrific book, Tell Me What You Want, and check out his wonderful podcast, The Sex and Psychology Podcast. Dr. Lee Miller, thank you so much for coming on the show again. Thanks for having me, Dan. Hi, Dan. I am in a bit of a pickle. About four or five years ago, my stepfather had an aortic dissection, which basically means his heart exploded. It's usually phasal, but he, he didn't die. And when he had that, a, f- a few things, you know, came came to light. Mainly the fact that he had been doing meth for the entire 10 years they had been married. They got married when I was about 14. And the other thing was, while he was doing his meth, he stole my clothes and my underwear and dressed up in them and wore them and jerked off in them you know, while he was doing the meth. And uh, I found this out. Then and, you know, in the years since, I have chosen to stop talking to my mother and him, you know, my mother for being married to him and him for obvious reasons. But my mother says that it wasn't personal, that it was a matter of access, that he stole my clothes and my underwear to jerk off with and wear because I lived in the house. It was, it was there. And he, he did steal other women's stuff and wear it and jerk off in it, too. But uh, I find the fact that he chose mine to be pretty repugnant. But she's truly convinced that it was not personal. And that is why she chose to stay married to him after all that. And I'm facing a lot of pressure to let my mother back into my life and talk to them and deal with them. And I, I could really use your perspective, Dan. What do you think? Can, can meth give you fetishes you didn't have before? She also says that he is totally not doing this anymore now that he's clean. And, and can meth, uh, like, do you think it was personal? Do you, do you think that it was about the fact that it was mine? Like, I am a grade A kinky pervert, and I understand that taboo things get us off, and I think that that's what it was. I think it was taboo, and it was naughty, and it was dirty, and it got him off. But what do you think, Dan? Personal, not personal, the product of meth, or innate in him? It all really comes down to what you want to believe and what you're going to choose to believe. Because there's something unknowable here. There's a question I can't answer. You ask me if it was personal, if he wasn't just grabbing your clothes because they were women's clothes and they were available to him and he had a cross-dressing thing and meth disinhibited him and allowed him to access his craziest, kinkiest fantasies. 
And it was just a crime of opportunity. Although, of course, cross-dressing isn't a crime and this wasn't really a crime, but it was definitely really fucking squicky. But I can't tell you whether he was thinking about you when he was masturbating in your underwear and your clothes or if it was just wearing women's underwear, any women's underwear and clothes that turned him on. That is the explanation that he's given you or that he's given your mother and that your mother's relayed to you. And now you're in a position where you have to decide whether you want to believe it or not. And I guess to wrestle with whether it's a lie, even if it is a lie, isn't it the lie that you would want him to tell you? Isn't it the lie that you would want him to attempt to live up to for the rest of his life, that he's not attracted to you and that it wasn't personal? And arguing in favor of the it wasn't personal thing is that it wasn't just your underwear and your clothing that he was stealing and dressing up in. There were other women, other women's underwear, other women's clothing that he was out there stealing, dressing up in, jerking off about. That doesn't prove that he wasn't turned on by the thought of it being your underwear, your clothes, these other women, their underwear, their clothes. But it certainly tips the scales just a tiny bit in the direction of he was a cross-dresser, is a cross-dresser, and experiences deep shame about these desires, these activities, and couldn't walk into a store and buy himself the clothes that he wanted for these meth-fueled jack-off sessions where he dressed up in women's clothing because he couldn't look the sales clerk in the eye, and he couldn't go online and buy these things because he didn't want to risk a package coming to the house that you opened or your mother opened and then having to explain himself. Again, it just, it tips the scales in the tiniest direction toward his story that it wasn't personal. It wasn't about it being your underwear. It was just about it being underwear, gendered clothing, women's clothing that he wanted. And this was the only women's clothing or that he had access to or the easiest women's clothing that he had access to yours, the other women whose clothes he somehow had access to and swiped all that said, you're asking me a question. I can't really answer. Is he telling the truth? I don't know. And you'll never know. So it boils down to what do you want to believe? If you want to have a relationship with your mother, if you want to let him back into your life, in a small way, now that he's clean, you could choose to believe it. It may mean, it definitely means giving him the benefit of some very grave doubts, but is it worth it to have them back in your life, to give him the benefit of those doubts? You ended with a question that I couldn't answer, and I'm going to close with a question only you can answer. Do you want them back in your life? Are you willing to believe him when he tells you this, knowing or never not being able to not know that it could be a lie. You also ask if math gives people kinks that they don't otherwise have. And in your stepfather's case, did math give him a kink for your underwear or an attraction to you that he otherwise wasn't harboring? And math just kind of jammed that into his head. Uh, no, math is a disinhibitor. People who are fucked up on math will do things when they're fucked up on math that they wouldn't do when they weren't fucked up on math. They lose their self-control. They lose inhibitions, including inhibitions. You know, I'm generally con inhibition, but there are some inhibitions that are good. And I'm very pro inhibitions around violating 14-year-old girls that you have stepped into parental role in their lives. Yeah, that's an inhibition that all adult men should cherish, cultivate, nurture, hold on to. And if meth interferes with your ability to hold on to that inhibition, you shouldn't fucking do meth. 
Uh, yes, Dan, I'm a bisexual male, and I am a. Huh, I am looking for a bunch of men to uh, get behind closed doors with and strip off naked and let me lay on my back and let all these men take turns shoving cock deep in my throat and taking my ass brutally hard and fast. I want to swallow a bunch of come up. I want to just be mm, dominated. I want to mm, straddle my face and just make that cock go down in my throat. Take turns. There are two ways you could get this. Well, three, or there used to be three. Once upon a time, there was a thing called Craigslist personal ads, but those are gone. There are two ways now that I think you could arrange for this fantasy gangbang that you've been dreaming of. And one is to get a boyfriend, establish a long-term committed relationship, share that fantasy, share this specific fantasy with your boyfriend, find a boyfriend, prioritize a boyfriend who wants an open relationship, who is into sharing fantasies and enjoys having his fantasies realized and is honored by the opportunity to help his partner realize his fantasies. And then maybe your boyfriend and you can get busy get on Grinder, get another hookup apps and arrange to find the three or four guys to make your dream night come true. The other way you could arrange for something like this to happen would be to get to a big gay sex party, get to a big gay orgy. There are big gay fetish events, big gatherings where, you know, there are dark rooms, there are rooms with slings in them where this sort of thing happens, where people jump into a sling and get their asses reamed and their throats fucked by all comers in every sense of the word, all comers. You could get to one and make this happen for yourself or hope this happens. There's no guarantee that if you jump in a sling at a big fetish event like Darklands in Antwerp, that anybody's going to touch you, but odds are pretty good that some guys will, that some guys will want to. And who knows, you may, Win the lottery, win the lottery, and wind up with your ass and your throat stuffed in the ways in which you would like them to be stuffed. Get thee to a sex party, go. Or find a guy, even a friend with benefits. Doesn't have to be a long-term committed romantic relationship with another dude who's into open relationships and making fantasies happen. Just get a good, tight FWB. One guy who can take turns filling your ass or your throat, who's turned on by the idea of sharing you with a group of men, your FWB, and then maybe you and he together can make that happen. Good luck. All right, before we get to listener feedback, before we get to your response calls, let's read some listener tweets. This week, Tete Oloan tweeted, listening to this week's Savage Lovecast and Fake Dan Savage hit the nail on the head with that gay pride intro. It was so good. I had to listen to it twice. I love pride and all the crazy kinksters that are part of it. Heart emoji. Thank you, Tete. Of course, you don't have to be a crazy kinkster to be a part of pride, but you don't have to pretend you aren't a crazy kinkster to take part in pride either. The whole point of my intro last week. In response to a request for podcast recommendations, tap, tap, tap one tweeted at fake Dan Savage does the Savage Lovecast, a spectacular sex advice podcast at Dax Shepard's armchair expert, a huge favorite. And I love the girls from Shameless Sex. A thrill to appear on that list. I'm a fan of Dak Shepard's, of course. Also just started listening to Shameless Sex and really enjoying it. Tail Zeit Profi tweets, 
chuckled when I realized you need to be GGG to participate in parts of German public life right now. Geimpft, genessen, getesta, or vaccinated, recovered, tested. Hoping the Savage Lovecast meaning of GGG will become more common here soon, too. I hope GGG catches on in German-speaking lands myself. And speaking of German and chuckles, I chuckled when I learned that birth control pills are called anti-baby pillen in German. That's not the English translation of the German. That is the German word, anti-baby pillen. Oh, and the first talk parents have with their children about sex, they don't call it the birds and the bees over there. It's called the Enlightenment which is so much better. I want to start a campaign to get it adopted in the English-speaking world. All right, thank you to everyone who tweeted or posted your other social media sites about the Lovecast this week. We really appreciate it. And now, listener response calls. Hi, Dan. This one's for the girl who is 19 and is talking about cuddling with her best friend. My best friend is a woman, and... I don't know that this cuddling thing is such a great idea. Of course you can do it. Of course it's feasible. And I've had a few moments in my life when I've had a few too many drinks where I've been like, I'm going to call her because she's the best and I love her and I kind of want to sleep with her tonight because she's just great. But I haven't. And this friendship is going on 25 years now and I wouldn't change a thing about it. This is a best friend. This is somebody you don't want to lose. The odds of you catching feelings, somebody catching feelings and saying, well, I don't want you as a friend anymore because I love you too much physically or I'm attracted, whatever. That's a big, serious risk. If I were you, I wouldn't do it. You're getting close to the end of the pandemic. Why risk it at the end of the pandemic? I just think there are lots of chances for you to cuddle with other people and they're down the road from you, just around the corner. Hi, this is a response to the guy who is receiving too many memes from his hookup in episode 762. I just want to highlight something that Dan said. Meme sharing culture is like a millennial thing. It's just a form of like friendly acquaintance-like communication. And he may be sending this exact same string of memes to like 20 different people every day. This is like a thing that people do. This is how they communicate. It may have nothing to do with the fact that you hooked up. I wouldn't put so much emphasis on it or take it as like communication that should stress you out. Obviously just don't respond or take a break from social media or tell him you are if you, if you wish not to receive them. But I think this is like a harmless meme, like communication millennial thing and not quite the intrusive communication that you think it is. Hey Dan, I had a suggestion for the guy who was really nervous about meeting people on the apps and had a lot of anxiety in bars. Going to bars on nights where there's a reason to be there besides necessarily hooking up or or chatting people up uh, like a karaoke night is a really good reason to have something to look at. If you're too nervous to talk to anybody, I totally recommend going on a night where there's something fun happening like a like a performance, uh, a drag show, karaoke, just some reason to have a drink in your hand and something to do uh, besides awkwardly talking to people you don't know. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for me or a comment about this week's show? There are two ways to get them to us. You can call us at 206-302-2064, or you can use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. Do you know that the very best wedding gift you can give this wedding season, now that weddings are back on, is a subscription to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast? It is true. Go to www.savagelovecast.com and click on gift 
to show the newlyweds you truly bless their union. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Dr. Justin Lay Miller on Twitter at Justin Lay Miller. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week on installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.